When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 8 On the 14th, the directors and their legal advisors met for the reading of the report with closed doors. These were the terms in which the commissioners related the results of their inquiry, private and confidential. We have the honor to inform our directors that we arrived in Venice on December 6, 1860. On the same day, we proceeded to the palace, inhabited by Lord Mountberry at the time of his last illness and death. We were received with all possible courtesy by Lady Mountberry's brother, Baron Rivar. My sister was her husband's only attendant throughout his illness, the Baron informed us. She is overwhelmed by grief and fatigue, or she would have been here to receive you personally. What are your wishes, gentlemen, and what can I do for you in her ladyship's place? In accordance with our instructions, we answered that the death and burial of Lord Mountberry abroad made it desirable to obtain more complete information relating to his illness and to the circumstances which had attended it than could be conveyed in writing. We explained that the law provided for the lapse of a certain interval of time before the payment of the sum assured, and we expressed our wish to conduct the inquiry with the most respectful consideration for her ladyship's feelings and for the convenience of any other members of the family inhabiting the house. To this the baron replied, I am the only member of the family living here, and I and the palace are entirely at your disposal. From first to last we found this gentleman perfectly straightforward and most amiably willing to assist us. With the one exception of her ladyship's room, we went over the whole of the palace the same day. It is an immense place only partially furnished. The first floor and part of the second floor were the portions of it that had been inhabited by Lord Mountberry and the members of the household. We saw the bedchamber at one extremity of the palace in which his lordship died and the small room communicating with it, which he used as a study. Next to this was a large apartment or hall, the doors of which he habitually kept locked, his object being, as we were informed, to pursue his studies uninterruptedly in perfect solitude. On the other side of the large hall were the bedchamber occupied by her ladyship and the dressing-room in which the maid slept previous to her departure for England. Beyond these were the dining and reception-rooms, opening into an antechamber which gave access to the grand staircase of the palace." The only inhabited rooms on the second floor were the sitting-room and bedroom occupied by Baron Rivar, and another room at some distance from it, which had been the bedroom of the courier Ferrari. The rooms on the third floor and on the basement were completely unfurnished and in a condition of great neglect. We inquired if there was anything to be seen below the basement, and we were at once informed that there were vaults beneath, which we were at perfect liberty to visit. We went down so as to leave no part of the palace unexplored. 
The vaults were, it was believed, used as dungeons in the old times, say some centuries since. Air and light were only partially admitted to these dismal places by two long shafts of winding construction, which communicated with the backyard of the palace, and the openings of which, high above the ground, were protected by iron gratings. The stone stairs leading down into the vaults could be closed at will by a heavy trap door in the back hall, which we found open. The baron himself led the way down the stairs. We remarked that it might be awkward if that trap door fell down and closed the opening behind us. The baron smiled at the idea. "'Don't be alarmed, gentlemen,' he said. "'The door is safe. "'I had an interest in seeing to it myself "'when we first inhabited the palace. "'My favorite study is the study of experimental chemistry, "'and my workshop, since we have been in Venice, is down here.' "'These last words explained a curious smell in the vaults, "'which we noticed the moment we entered them. "'We can only describe the smell by saying "'that it was of a twofold sort, "'faintly aromatic, as it were, in its first effect.' but with some after-odor very sickening in our nostrils. The barons, furnaces and retorts and other things were all there to speak for themselves, together with some packages of chemicals, having the name and address of the person who had supplied them plainly visible on their labels. Not a pleasant place for study, Baron Rivar observed, but my sister is timid. She has a horror of chemical smells and explosions, and she has banished me to these lower regions so that my experiments may neither be smelt nor heard. He held out his hands, on which we had noticed that he wore gloves in the house. Accidents will happen sometimes, he said, no matter how careful a man may be. I burnt my hands severely in trying a new combination the other day, and they are only recovering now. We mention these otherwise unimportant incidents in order to show that our exploration of the palace was not impeded by any attempt at concealment. We were even admitted to her ladyship's own room on a subsequent occasion, when she went out to take the air. Our instructions recommended us to examine his lordship's residence, because the extreme privacy of his life at Venice and the remarkable departure of the only two servants in the house might have some suspicious connection with the nature of his death. We found nothing to justify suspicion. As to his lordship's retired way of life, we have conversed on the subject with the council and the banker, the only two strangers who had any communication with him. He called once at the bank to obtain money on his letter of credit, and excused himself from accepting an invitation to visit the banker at his private residence on the ground of his delicate health. His lordship wrote to the same effect on sending his card to the council, to excuse himself from personally returning that gentleman's visit to the palace. We have seen the letter, and we beg to offer the following copy of it. Many years past in India have injured my constitution. I have ceased to go into society. The one occupation of my life now is the study of Oriental literature. The air of Italy is better for me than the air of England, or I should never have left home. Pray, accept the apologies of a student and an invalid. The active part of my life is at an end. The self-seclusion of his lordship seems to us to be explained in these brief lines. We have not, however, on that account, spared our inquiries in other directions. Nothing to excite a suspicion of anything wrong has come to our knowledge. 
As to the departure of the lady's maid, we have seen the woman's receipt for her wages, in which it is expressly stated that she left Lady Mountberry's service because she disliked the continent and wished to get back to her own country. This is not an uncommon result of taking English servants to foreign parts. Lady Mountberry has informed us that she abstained from engaging another maid in consequence of the extreme dislike which his lordship expressed to having strangers in the house in the state of his health at that time. The disappearance of the courier Ferrari is, in itself, unquestionably a suspicious circumstance. Neither her ladyship nor the baron can explain it, and no investigation that we could make has thrown the smallest light on this event, or has justified us in associating it, directly or indirectly, with the object of our inquiry. We have even gone the length of examining the portmanteau which Ferrari left behind him. It contains nothing but clothes and linen, no money, and not even a scrap of paper in the pockets of the clothes. The portmanteau remains in charge of the police. We have also found opportunities of speaking privately to the old woman who attends to the rooms occupied by her ladyship and the baron. She was recommended to fill this situation by the keeper of the restaurant who has supplied the meals to the family throughout the period of their residence at the palace. Her character is most favorably spoken of, Unfortunately, her limited intelligence makes her of no value as a witness. We were patient and careful in questioning her, and we found her perfectly willing to answer us, but we could elicit nothing which is worth including in the present report. On the second day of our inquiries, we had the honor of an interview with Lady Mountberry. Her ladyship looked miserably worn and ill, and seemed to be quite at a loss to understand what we wanted with her. Baron Rivar, who introduced us, explained the nature of our errand in Venice, and took pains to assure her that it was purely formal duty on which we were engaged. Having satisfied her ladyship on this point, he discreetly left the room. The questions which we addressed to Lady Mountberry related mainly, of course, to his lordship's illness. The answers, given with great nervousness of manner, but without the slightest appearance of reserve, informed us of the facts that follow. Lord Mountberry had been out of order for some time past, nervous and irritable. He first complained of having taken cold on November 13th last. He passed a wakeful and feverish night and remained in bed the next day. Her ladyship proposed sending for medical advice. He refused to allow her to do this, saying that he could quite easily be his own doctor in such a trifling matter as a cold. Some hot lemonade was made at his request with a view to producing perspiration. Lady Mountberry's maid, having left her at that time, the courier Ferrari, then the only servant in the house, went out to buy the lemons. Her ladyship made the drink with her own hands. It was successful in producing perspiration, and Lord Mountberry had some hours of sleep afterwards. Later in the day, having need of Ferrari's services, Lady Mountberry rang for him, the bell was not answered. Baron Rivar searched for the man in the palace and out of it, in vain. From that time forth, not a trace of Ferrari could be discovered. This happened on November 14th. On the night of the 14th, the feverish symptoms accompanying his lordship's cold returned. They were in part perhaps attributable to the annoyance and alarm caused by Ferrari's mysterious disappearance. 
it had been impossible to conceal the circumstance, as his lordship rang repeatedly for the courier, insisting that the man should relieve Lady Mountberry and the Baron by taking their places during the night at his bedside. On the 15th, the day on which the old woman first came to do the housework, his lordship complained of sore throat and of a feeling of oppression on the chest. On this day, and again on the 16th, her ladyship and the baron entreated him to see a doctor. He still refused. "'I don't want strange faces about me. My cold will run its course in spite of the doctor.' That was his answer. On the 17th, he was so much worse that it was decided to send for medical help, whether he liked it or not. Baron Rivar, after inquiry at the council's, secured the services of Dr. Bruno, well known as an eminent physician in Venice, with the additional recommendation of having resided in England and having made himself acquainted with English forms of medical practice. Thus far our account of his lordship's illness has been derived from statements made by Lady Mountberry. The narrative will now be most fitly continued in the language of the doctor's own report, herewith subjoined. My medical diary informs me that I first saw the English Lord Mountberry on November 17th. He was suffering from a sharp attack of bronchitis. Some precious time had been lost through his obstinate objection to the presence of a medical man at his bedside. Generally speaking, he appeared to be in a delicate state of health. His nervous system was out of order. He was at once timid and contradictory. When I spoke to him in English, he answered in Italian— and when I tried him in Italian, he went back to English. It mattered little. The malady had already made such progress that he could only speak a few words at a time, and those in a whisper. I at once applied the necessary remedies. Copies of my prescriptions, with translation into English, accompany the present statement and are left to speak for themselves. For the next three days I was in constant attendance on my patient, he answered to the remedies employed, improving slowly but decidedly. I could conscientiously assure Lady Mountberry that no danger was to be apprehended thus far. She was indeed a most devoted wife. I vainly endeavored to induce her to accept the services of a competent nurse. She would allow nobody to attend on her husband but herself. Night and day this estimable woman was at his bedside, in her brief intervals at repose, her brother watched the sick man in her place. This brother was, I must say, very good company in the intervals when we had time for a little talk. He dabbled in chemistry, down in the horrid underwater vaults of the palace, and he wanted to show me some of his experiments. I have enough of chemistry in writing prescriptions, and I declined. He took it quite good-humouredly. I am straying away from my subject. Let me return to the sick lord. Up to the twentieth, then, things went well enough. I was quite unprepared for the disastrous change that showed itself when I paid Lord Mountberry my morning visit on the twenty-first. He had relapsed, and seriously relapsed. Examining him to discover the cause, I found symptoms of pneumonia, that is to say, in unmedical language, inflammation of the substance of the lungs. He breathed with difficulty, and was only partially able to relieve himself by coughing. I made the strictest inquiries, and was assured that his medicine had been administered as carefully as usual, and that he had not been exposed to any changes of temperature. 
It was, with great reluctance, that I added to Lord Mountberry's distress. But I felt bound when she suggested a consultation with another physician to own that I, too, thought there was really need for it. Her ladyship instructed me to spare no expense and to get the best medical opinion in Italy. The best opinion was happily within our reach. The first and foremost of Italian physicians is Torello of Padua, I sent a special messenger for the great man. He arrived on the evening of the 21st and confirmed my opinion that pneumonia had set in and that our patient's life was in danger. I told him what my treatment of the case had been and he approved of it in every particular. He made some valuable suggestions and, at Lady Mountberry's express request, he consented to defer his return to Padua until the following morning. We both saw the patient at intervals in the course of the night. The disease, steadily advancing, set our utmost resistance at defiance. In the morning, Dr. Torello took his leave. I can be of no further use, he said to me. The man is past all help, and he ought to know it. Later in the day I warned my lord, as gently as I could, that his time had come. I am informed that there are serious reasons for my stating what passed between us on this occasion, in detail, and without any reserve. I comply with the request. Lord Mountberry received the intelligence of his approaching death with becoming composure, but with a certain doubt. He signed to me to put my ear to his mouth. He whispered faintly, "'Are you sure?' It was no time to deceive him. I said, "'Positively sure.' He waited a little, gasping for breath, and then he whispered again, "'Feel under my pillow.' I found under his pillow a letter, sealed and stamped, ready for the post. His next words were just audible and no more. "'Post it yourself.' I answered, of course, that I would do so, and I did post the letter with my own hand. I looked at the address. It was directed to a lady in London, the street I cannot remember. The name I can perfectly recall. It was an Italian name. Mrs. Ferrari. That night, my lord nearly died of asphyxia. I got him through it for the time, and his eyes showed that he understood me when I told him, the next morning, that I had posted the letter. This was his last effort of consciousness. When I saw him again, he was sunk in apathy. He lingered in a state of insensibility, supported by stimulants, until the 25th, and died, unconscious to the last, on the evening of that day. As to the cause of his death, it seems, if I may be excused for saying so, simply absurd to ask the question. Bronchitis, terminating in pneumonia, there is no more doubt that this, and this only, was the malady of which he expired than that two and two make four, Dr. Torello's own note of the case is added here to a duplicate of my certificate, in order, as I am informed, to satisfy some English offices in which his lordship's life was insured. The English offices must have been founded by that celebrated saint and doubter mentioned in the New Testament, whose name was Thomas. Dr. Bruno's evidence ends here. Reverting for a moment to our inquiries addressed to Lady Mountberry, we have to report that she can give us no information on the subject of the letter, on the subject of the letter which the doctor posted at Lord Mountberry's request. When his lordship wrote it, what it contained, 
why he kept it a secret from Lady Mountberry, and from the Baron also, and why he should write it all to the wife of his courier. These are questions to which we find it simply impossible to obtain any replies. It seems even useless to say that the matter is open to suspicion. Suspicion implies conjecture of some kind, and the letter under my lord's pillow baffles all conjecture. Application to Mrs. Ferrari may perhaps clear up the mystery. Her residence in London will be easily discovered at the Italian courier's office, Golden Square. Having arrived at the close of the present report, we have now to draw your attention to the conclusion which is justified by the results of our investigation. The plain question before our directors and ourselves appears to be this. Has the inquiry revealed any extraordinary circumstances which render the death of Lord Mountberry open to suspicion? The inquiry has revealed extraordinary circumstances beyond all doubt, such as the disappearance of Ferrari, the remarkable absence of the customary establishment of servants in the house, and the mysterious letter which his lordship asked the doctor to post. But where is the proof that any one of these circumstances is associated, suspiciously and directly associated, with the only event which concerns us, the event of Lord Mountberry's death? In the absence of any such proof, and in the face of the evidence of two eminent physicians, it is impossible to dispute the statement on the certificate that his lordship died a natural death. We are bound, therefore, to report that there are no valid grounds for refusing the payment of the sum for which the Lord Mountberry's life was assured. We shall send these lines to you by the post of tomorrow, December 10th, leaving time to receive your further instructions, if any, in reply to our telegram of this evening announcing the conclusion of the inquiry. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.